Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Eat Sleep Suplex Retweet. Gentlemen, for a show that covers everything this is the show that we wait for. The biggest show in New Japan's calendar. Wrestle Kingdom 15 from the Tokyo Dome two nights. And we're also going to be talking a little bit about New Year's Day January 6th. Uh, without giving too much away about your overall thoughts on the show, I think it's fair to say there's a lot to, to talk about with Wrestle Kingdom. Uh, it was definitely a massive, massive two nights. Might not have been as big a crowd there, but they still made it feel ever much the spectacle. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Also, we had talked about in the, our preview show about the restrictions that, and you could see like a lot of the top decks, as we talked about before, weren't really full, but they really filled out the lower part on the floor of the Tokyo Dome, and the crowd like really felt full, and like, even though they could only like clap their hands and like tap their feet, when we talk about some of the more main event matches, they certainly got the crowd engaged enough, so it's still you still had that New Japan atmosphere that you'd expect from a show this big. Yeah, yeah, it was no expense felt spared. Yeah, you could you could see some camera angles that it wasn't quite as busy a dome show, but you know they they still they didn't treat it any less for having less fans. They gave us everything. Yeah, totally. And so, because there's a lot to kind of get through with both nights, we'll just uh, like straight into it. Uh, night one started like an hour earlier because the pre-show featured the New Japan uh, Rumble match to determine the four competitors that would go through to tonight two for the KOPW Provisional uh, 2021 Trophy Holder. Say that three times fast, a mouthful. Uh, we had Chase Owen starting at number one because apparently he. Uh, Politic to be number one because he wanted to go the full way and he paid for it because the number two entrant was Tommy Hill Ishii and then the third entrant was Minoru Suzuki and Suzuki and Ishii seemed to be focused on each other and Chase Owens was annoyed that they weren't paying attention to him and he paid for that because when they did pay attention to him they hit him very very hard as they're one to do Yeah, poor Chase trying to think that he could handle it with the big guys and they didn't half make him pay for it with some stiff strikes. It really knocked him for six. <laughs> yeah, this reminded me a lot of uh, when they did the G1 Supercard show in MSG a couple of years ago where they had that pre-show 30-man rumble and Kenny King wanted to be number one and then he got stuck with Minoru Suzuki at number two. Like It felt very similar to the way what they were doing with Chase and then it didn't get any easier because Yuji Nagata came in at number four and I remember like occasionally when you show the screen they put up who was coming out next, and I like I seen that Minoru Suzuki was like laying in shots to Tomiyoshi, but then he briefly looked up and stopped when he saw Nagata, and then they two went at it when Nagata got in the ring, kind of reminding you of like last summer when they just couldn't stop battering each other. 
Uh, murder grandpa vs other grandpa absolutely just <laughs> slugfest every time they go at it. Yeah, we did have quite a few of the, the older guys in this match. You know, we had uh, Megata Suzuki, we had uh, Tenzan, we also had uh, Tiger Mask making a return after missing most of last year, apparently due to uh, struggles with diverticulitis. Uh, and so that was obviously it's good to see him back. And it got quite a decent response when he came out. You know, it's quite nice to see him in there. Also, we've got some of the young lines. You've got Gabriel Kidd, Yuamura, uh, uh, and uh, Yuamura and uh, Suji get involved, all trying to team up. And we also had big bad luck Bali being the uh, the big banner match, though, and quite a few people out. Yeah, they're, they're really like it's quite interesting because the New Japan Rumble it's it's usually just a kind of almost like a throwaway thing just to kind of get the fans going, but that, this time it actually served a purpose. And it did have some good stories and it like the young lions team together I thought was brilliant and Bushy's underlying hatred to try and not let them in. <laughs> yeah, we even had some like shock eliminations. We had like while they got into the were like Barney Joe, we had a shock elimination, both of them getting eliminated at the same time by Hanari, which surprised me and actually made me think, Oh, Hanari gonna be one of the final four but then a wee bit later on he got eliminated by Ishii. It's not like, Oh, all right. But they weren't. They weren't afraid to give some surprises in this match, and we also got uh, Rocky Romero showing up because as soon as Chris and Kevin said like we don't know where Rocky is, he's running late. Uh, immediately you know like Rocky's popping up in the battle royal, isn't he? Oh, you, you could just tell it was going to happen. Like it was just absolutely brilliant. Rocky, Rocky coming in and just really making making a bit of an impact. It, it was more. It was more in his way out that I found hilarious in commentary. Mm-hmm. And then you yeah, had, like I said, Bally, and it was really good for Chase Owens because he got battered quite a bit. And when he wasn't getting battered, he was like holding on to the ropes for dear life, like Road Dog in the 2000 Royal Rumble. And then obviously, as soon as Bally came in, he suddenly got confident. He's like, oh, I've got the big man to watch my back. But uh, it's weird because we thought that this had been a 22 man uh, Rumble on the Bijou, and that's where it was listed on on the, the website. Then they said it was a 20-man, then they said it was a 21-man. And the final entrant number 21 was Yano. But because of the speed that Fally was kind of throwing people out, and we had Bushy kind of hanging about on the outside, which is kind of smart, that stops you from being eliminated. So we had Chase, Bushy, and Fally still, and, and then the final entrant comes in, which is Yano. So that means, what, there's four left, which means they all go through, which means Yano got through tonight too. without having to do a single thing. All he did was walk down to the ramp and then realise, oh, well, Oh, I'm already through. Oh well, and he buggered off again, which I described to you the most Yano way of winning a match ever. I thought that was absolutely hilarious. He just came, he came down looking really nervous, like, oh shit, Fally's in the ring. What did I do? Oh wait, I don't have to go in the ring. Yes, I'm through. Because <laughs> we're talking about the way how long Yano's ring introduction is now, and we're talking about how long it would be if he added the 2021 original trophy. And like, Jesus, Yano was there. Daniel's ring introduction will take us into next Wrestle Kingdom. And the introduction's meant mad. <laughs> and I think this is like I knew Yano would go through. I think I could see either Chase or Fally going through. I didn't expect both of them to go through, but it's surprising given who else was in this match that this is the four that go through, like Bushy, Fally, Chase, and Yano. Because you now you had Suzuki in there, you had Show. And there you had, I thought, at least one of the uh, the three six-man champs go to 
Yoshihashi or Ishii would have went through, but I think given that this is a tale not to be taken seriously, mm-hmm. it's okay to have like what are basically made up of four like, undercard wrestlers competing for it, and getting a, these guys are getting a spotlight on the biggest show of the year. Yeah, it was a it was a nice touch, kind of like it was a, a last four that I had not. Well, yeah, I know I could have possibly expected, but the other three were big, massive surprises to me. But it worked. I really enjoyed it. Yeah, it was also on the pre-show, so it was a bit of fun. So, didn't like look at it too critically. And when we go into night two, we'll talk about what East Four did to start night two. But then we went into the main show after a, a weird introduction to the show with uh, Ricky Choshu. His, uh, his grandson who clearly didn't want to be there and uh, a man who looks a bit like Doc Brown from Back to the Future. I don't know who he is. I'm sure he's a big deal in Japan. Kind of welcoming us to the show and uh, we had our opening video package. We, uh, I like that the uh, on the English commentary, the first lines you hear on commentary is Rocky Romero saying, it's January 4th. You know what that means? A little uh, tribute to Mr. Brody Lee. Yeah, that little tribute was wonderful. Um, a lot better than that dire, dire entrance theme they had with the, the Japanese Don King, whoever he is. That was just awful. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I had no idea what was going on with that band. Like, I, I just assumed, like, yeah, this is, probably isn't for us. I'll just, like, just skip through here. And so we opened, we had a bit of fun with the pre-show rumble, and then we opened in the best way possible, I believe, with Hiromu Takahashi, one of the best of Super Juniors, taking on the 2020 Super J Cup winner El Fantasmo for the right to go on to face Taiji Shimori on night two for the Junior Heavyweight Championship. You had uh, Fantasmo coming out, throwing about his, uh, his jacket and going over to Kevin like, oh, where's Liger? Where's Liger? You know, rather shooting some uh, disrespect Liger's way. And, uh, you know, traditionally in a match involving two high flyers, some would say, some would say traditionally you have to build up to the high spots and the big moves. And in this match, ELP and Hiromu told those people to politely go fuck themselves as they wasted no time with some really big creative spots, even in the first few minutes. Yeah, these two did not hold back and probably wise that they put them on first to give them sufficient time to recover after the match because they didn't waste any time. And I've got to say, ELP's new entrance music, absolute banger. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because like, you had Hiromu doing dives off of the, the apron and then doing his kind of seated centre thing off the top, and then you had ELP doing moonsaults to the outside. And like, you know, like, it was basically, I think this is why they always put the juniors on first in shows like this, because it's the best way to get the crowd kind of hooked, because it's fast paced, you don't want to like, be afraid to blink because you'll miss something. And it went 17 minutes. I think, it, uh, I think that's because of how. The finish played it. I think it's because the finish was meant to look somehow out of nowhere. Like you've, it's very rare that a 17-minute match you're like, oh, that felt too short. I wanted to see more of it. Yeah, I mean, that's it, it was quite a brisk... Like The pace was quite well done. Um, not saying anything about Night 2's one yet, but you know, this, the pace was really well done. It did... like The, the, the finish coming out of nowhere, her own was selling as well of the, the kicks and everything. Like, is, is there something going on with that boot? That's the big question. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the way uh, EOP seems to be constantly adjusting his boot every now and then, right before he does his super kick. And I mean, Chris Chatham can say that, oh, he perfected it because he 
he's been super kicking trees out in British Columbia, I guess, if there's nothing else to do. Uh, but also it's been speculation that it's secretly maybe loaded, and I think somewhere down the line will, uh, you'll get caught that he's been hiding something in that boot that's uh, making these super kicks a little bit more effective. But it did create a good through going into night two in that ELP went right after the hand of uh, Hiromu, and kind of the hand and like the arm, which uh, would, if that was injured, obviously Taiji Moshi would clock that going into night two and maybe go after it to help set up his version of the yes lock. Mission which helped them gain the title from her over in the first place. And I think something that also may have cost ELP in this match is the fact that he seemed to be obsessed with copying uh, other former members of Bullet Club's moves like K Omega's V Trigger or AJ Styles' Styles Clash. Yeah, I mean, he seemed to be just trying to pay homage to his predecessors, but at the same time, he was just being a cocky arsehole when he paid for it. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, because then he set up for his finishing move and then Huron was turned around to a roll-up and got the pin, which again made the finish feel kind of out of nowhere, which you can expect from a junior match. Obviously, EOP was furious uh, and this set up Huron going through night two and this was put in the semi-main spot on night two, him and versus Taiji Shimori, which gave Huron plenty of time to recover and what's quite a nice fact, according to Chris Charlton, is that the semi-main spot that they got on night two is the highest uh, that the junior heavyweight title has ever really been on a Wrestle Kingdom card. Yeah, they they really made a huge deal of that. The, the, the juniors have came on so much in the last several years, kind of elevating themselves from that kind of opening match or within the first few to, to really being probably something that's actually the most anticipated match of the entire show. Mm-hmm. And it really speaks to like, what Hiromu has been trying to accomplish as part of the junior division as the kind of ace of the division. And they wanted juniors to be seen in a similar vein as the heavyweights, where, like from competing in the uh, in the New Japan Cup as junior heavyweight champion, getting title shots against the double champion. And also now like getting big ma- feature matches on both nights of wrestling, and especially going into the semi-main spot. And then coming out of it, said that someday he wants the junior heavyweight title to main event, the Tokyo Dome, which you know what, I you know never say never in pro wrestling. Eh? Yeah, that's. Uh, I, I think at this rate, it, it, it's a possibility that juniors could actually get the headline spot. Um, if, if not, if if they keep doing the two nights, I, I wouldn't be surprised if next year or two, the juniors take the main event in night one, which would be worth it. Because mm-hmm, we've never really. I think, again, the main reason for being at two nights this year is partly due to the COVID restrictions of having to limit the card size, but also because they still have uh, two, like, a double champion. I think going next year, I don't know if this will be a tradition now where this kind of remains a two-night event, but I think if it remains that way, then the two-night uh, version kind of gives you the room to do uh, the junior heavyweights in the main event, kind of like you know, ICW's Fear and Loathing was over two nights back in... 2019, we had the zero G, we had the zero G title main event in night one, and the world heavyweight title main event the second night. So it can be done, and I think Kuron will definitely be a part of that, given that he is the focal point of the division. Who who we would face? Maybe it will be a rematch with Ishimori, given that it feels like those two will probably be key rivals for each other going forward. Yeah, I mean this this is definitely the the big long term storytelling that these two seem to always be destined to come back together at some point, which to me makes fantastic long-term storytelling when they're kept apart for a while and then brought back. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, Bullet Club was kind of all over the uh, both nights of Red Kingdom as in the next match. We had Bullet Club, the Grills of Destiny, accompanied by Jado against Dangerous Techers for the IWGP Heavyweight Tag Titles, or uh, also the Counteract. Uh, Jado being outside with the Candlestick, Dangerous Techers brought Doki out with his, uh, with his pipe, kind of counteract that Jado did end up smacking that Candlestick across the back of uh, of Doki, which first out and probably went, well, he almost broke that Candlestick, which means there would have been Doki Brokey across his back. and. Just these, I think this Christian Arndt is now coming comedy with just a list of puns he can make relating to uh, to Doki. Definitely, that Doki Brokey one got got a pop out of me, and you know I love the fact that that's pretty much all stemmed from where's Gino because Gino Gino was the one that got us shouting the Doki Choki. Yeah, uh, they even they even like to the they even made a joke about that. Like you know, apparently we're all meant to ask when he's not here. Where's Gino? <laughs> uh, it was funny, like to see like this like heel v heel match. It went about nineteen minutes, and like there was even a point where like you seeing like Tamatonga getting worked over by uh, by Junior Tickets, which is strange because again you're used to both of these teams being heels. Uh, also, credit to God, like uh, gear you had the kind of white and silver gear that Tangaloa was wearing, and then the the color scheme of uh, Tamatonga's gear. I feel I'm maybe just be reading too much into this, but I thought the uh, the gear that Samatong was wearing maybe a wee bit uh, Boba Fett inspired with the colour scheme. Yeah, the kind of green remind me a lot about that, and also perhaps a little touch to his old military background back in the day as well, since he's former military. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I definitely could see it being that way, you know. And also the whole firing squad mentioned in their uh, the intro to their song, but you know. So it was good to see these two teams going at it, even though they're both heels. And I thought it was good away kind of either way, given that they both have guys in their corner. They could play in some shenanigans, which could have like cost GOD the match, even though it felt like it was theirs to win as they were still to get a win in the Tokyo Dome. Uh, they pulled it this kind of back drop move into a powerball, which they say was a, a move that their dad had used back in the day. And they also, at one point, you can just see, see it in the background, you see Tama, uh, sorry Tangaloa, hitting a, a Superman punch at one point, so yeah, some tributes out there to fellow Samoan wrestlers in this match. Yeah, paying tribute to the family and kind of that, yeah, the, the pop-up into the kind of, like, well, pretty much into Tangle as apeshit finisher, which I thought was a, an absolute stunning manoeuvre. Yeah, it was interesting that it wasn't any, like, double-team finisher from GOD, like the Magic Killer or the Super Power Bomb that put it away with a Tamatonga using the Iron Glove Stealing it from from Taichi, hitting him with it, and then the ape shit, which is kind of the, the island driver, which uh, I believe Rikishi, when he debuted uh, as the Rikishi character in the WWF, used the, that move for way well. So there you go, another tribute to the family. And they kind of snuck away with the with the title belts and the glove, like thieves in the night, immediately got the hell out of there. Now, record breaking seven time champions, and finally getting a win in the Tokyo Dome, and more importantly to Taichi, uh, Taichi is raging. That his glove's been stolen. The reaction to the glove getting stolen, and I don't know if you've been following it, but watching Tamara's Instagram and Twitter and all the places he's taken the glove with him has been absolute gold. Yeah, like flying back to the US, we like photo in the the lo- air, airport lounge with the the title belt sitting there with the, the with the glove sitting there and uh, drink next to it, and then the glove getting its own seat on the plane. 
on the way back to the US. And like it's, it's weird that Tai Chi has so much more attachment to this club rather than the tag team titles. Yeah, I, I really love that bit of storytelling. It's the kind of like the, the last remnant he has of his old, almost father-like figure, mentor, Izuka. And mm-hmm. I think it's going to play. It's, it's going to play into things in the long term. It's not over by a long shot. Oh, no, definitely, there'll definitely be a rematch in the near future. I do think maybe if you shade one or two minutes off, uh, this match be going nineteen minutes. I don't know about you. I did think there were a small bit in the middle work kind of was dragging before they started picking it back up again. Uh, I don't know why they keep trying to sit on doing the super power bomb because it seems to always get countered. Like it got, I think it was uh, Tango Loa and got up on the top rope to deliver it and then got caught in a submission by Zach Sabre Jr. I think it's mainly partly because Jairo keeps yelling super power bomb, which basically gives away to their opponents, which always helps them counter the move. See, I, I love that moment because when Zach got him in the submission, you could hear him shouting, get over here, Tai Chi, bloody get over here now. <laughs> just <laughs> proper Zach, Zach's London <laughs> <laughs> like, And it's very, very strong. I said, like, Tai Chi, get over here. And because you weren't sure, like, has he maybe missed his cue or is he just being Zach Sabre Jr.? Yeah, uh-huh. absolutely. Zach being Zach. <laughs> <laughs> and then also, he had Shadow trying to get involved. I'm pretty sure he got kicked in the balls by, uh, by Tai Chi, who is also a best part of his entrance. Is uh, the, the debate still continue on commentary, like Christian insisting, no, it's a wireless microphone. It, it, he's definitely singing, it's not being limp sick or anything. You know, the Tai Chi's played all the great venues here and here. Now he's playing the Tokyo Dome once again. And, you know, usually uh, women throw their, their underwear at pop stars. It's Tai Chi throwing his, instead it's Tai Chi throwing his trousers into the crowd. <laughs> that was absolutely outstanding. And yeah, it's never a big match, Tai Chi, without the trousers getting ripped off. Has to happen. Yeah, totally. But. Uh, I still thought it was a hell of a match. It was good to see G.O.D. once again on top of the division. Uh, obviously, I said they're record-breaking uh, tag champs. You know, now we've been seven times before then. The record was held by uh, Tenzan and Kojima. And they were part of the next match with Tenzan and accompanying Kojima for his match against Kenta to, for, the whole, for the right to challenge US title uh, briefcase. But before that, Grant, we got a, a little uh, message from John Moxley, basically warning Conceal the boogeyman of New Japan, saying that you, you all wished that I wouldn't return, but I'm back, and whoever walks out of the Tokyo Dome with that briefcase, rest assured, I'm coming for you. Yeah, finally. I mean, it, it's like, we, we speculated, could there be an appearance that didn't feel like there would be, but at least we got something. We know Moxley's not done. Finally, we have an answer. I've been waiting ages for this. Yeah, it's funny that uh, Kenta's been a big part of the New Japan Strong show and the tapings there and then as soon as he goes over to Japan John Moxley pops up in the same ring where they do New Japan Strong just like well, now as soon as I the minute I leave the country you suddenly show up and that alone has got me speculating is there going to be a bit of an easement is AEW going to let him wrestle in America so we get this bloody US title match that we were in like the the, the the bloody case has been defended more times than the bloody belt. <laughs> yeah, they actually said that like if uh, if, if Kenta walked out with still the briefcase, 
having defended it already against Finlay, Jeff Cobb, uh, Tanahashi, Brody King, you know, that, and with, if he went at a fifth time against Kojima, that would make him technically the most successful US champion without even holding the US belt. Yeah, and I mean, <laughs> there you I mean, yeah, it was like that that whole build up and like getting to the match itself. It was a match which it was obviously thrown in at last minute because Juice being injured, but it, it was a, it was a really good match. I enjoyed it. Yeah, I. It's just like it feels like over long overdue to have this match. I agree with you. I'm assuming that. A revolution in February at AEW's pay-per-view will be a rematch between uh, Kenny and John Moxley and you know we've seen that Kenny Omega has been allowed to go do shows outside of AEW with him appearing this, uh, this Sunday's uh, Hard to Kill so obviously uh, it's not really around the possibility that we could have this match happen before revolution happens and uh, more than likely probably on New Japan Strong because it would help boost up the numbers for New Japan World for people to go out and check that out and it was also like further established that basically the cornerstone of the US brand is the US Championship. Yeah, I mean, to me, that that makes sense to finally get the match and have have the Moxley finally get dethroned, even if it's temporary. You know, it just it needs to happen unless Moxley can commit to more Japan dates. They do need that belt back in in regular contention. Yeah, and regardless of like UFE retains it, like the, the possibility ever since Kenta won it, like the possibility has been very tantalizing. The idea Kenta versus Moxley, and and so like we just want to see that match happen. But going to to this match here in the Tokyo Dome, yeah, we had we went fourteen minutes twelve seconds to this match with Kojima, and I said to you that it could be like the surprise of the night, and like Kojima still looked like a contender, you know. You had it's, it seemed very similar like to the Goto match last year, okay, the the clashing of sales of the King's Road sale that Kent is used to compared to strong sale that Kojima does, you know, with the chops constantly in the corner. Uh you had Kenta kinda of mocking the kind of mocking the, the chops and that that uh, Tenzon does and you had a DDT spot on the apron by Kojima which looked nasty. Yeah, I mean that's it. it was actually like the, the clash of the styles worked really well, and they done the right balance. The match didn't go on too long because, let's face it, Kojima is no young lion these days. But they played to his strengths. They gave him a really good showing, and it, it did show that the old guys can still really put it on when it's needed. Yeah, and he had Kent at one point going for the the briefcase as he often does, trying you know. Like hit him with it, he referee got knocked down and kind of tried to swing the briefcase, but Kojima just lariated it out right out of his hand. And my said Kenta with the lariat, but also the referee even taken down. But Kenta did eventually get the one with the GTS, which is the right result. And it, like I said, it was a good match, but thankfully it didn't outstay its welcome, which can't, which is a, something that cannot be said for the match that started off the second half of night one. Ah <laughs> uh, yes, we we do need to go on to that one. <laughs> yeah, it wasn't everyone's, it wasn't everyone's favorite match. <laughs> no, uh, it, it definitely wasn't. Uh, judging by the responses I, I've seen, you know, online, I've seen all sorts of people kind of slagging uh, 
Great O'Can for his wrestling style. Because, like, I think we we weren't the biggest fans of Great O'Can's match with Okada from back at Power Struggle. Uh, you know, after a good showing in the World Tag League, I was, I was willing to give him another kind of chance. And then this match with Tanahashi went over 17 minutes. And I'll, I'll just say this. This was a match I, across both nights, I struggled to really pay any attention to. Like I kept finding myself kind of, kind of just checking out of it because it just seemed to go the exact same way as the Okada match. You know, Grio can works them over slowly, over and over again, until eventually, you know, Tanahashi makes his big comeback. Uh, they tried they tried their best to, like, Tanahashi having, like, battered Okada on the final show of 2020 with a steel chair, and then Okada tried to bring in a steel chair, which made him look stupid because he would easily got himself DQ'd. But then Tanahashi considered using the chair, but, like, no, I'm not going to do it that way, and then just beats him with two high fly flows. It just felt so boring. To me, they really missed an opportunity. Like Tana got too much offense. They Okan needs a few things to me to make him work properly. Like the the, the gear that he comes in needs an overhaul. Like when he first appeared, and he had the kind of suit and everything. He looked quite intimidating. Not these daft yellow jammies that he comes in. And when he walks to the ring, just walk with authority. Didn't he do this weird interpretive dance? It's like, what the fuck are you playing at, pal? <laughs> yeah, uh, I think it's also the style. I think it's nice to have a style that kind of stands out from everybody else in the card, but I just don't think it sta- has stands out in the right way. It's very slow, methodical. You know, and too many people in New Japan are doing the Mongolian chops, by the way. You know, Tenzan was <laughs> doing it, then also what was doing it as his kind of protege as a tribute to him, but then it's a big part of Guerrero Khan's offense, and then anybody who's fighting Master Watto or somebody related to who's uh, friends with Kojima, but anybody who's fighting Master Watto or somebody who's friends with Tenzan would then do the chops to mock them. Like, stop doing too many people are doing Mongolian chops in 2021. Just not the one thing I would say. I'll give Okan one thing. When he does a Mongolian chop, you bloody hear it anyway with that big scream that he does, which is hilarious sounding. I know, which again also takes me a bit. And then I think it's also that fact he was going after like the legs of, of Tanahashi, which again is just a, it seems to be the format of a Tanahashi match now. That, oh, his legs are knackered, so everybody goes after the legs. And then also he had the big eliminator, like what was a big claw as well. Feels like a weird move to be using in this, uh, 2021. But, but uh, yeah, it's just like, it felt like the way he just that it made his comeback was very Cena esque from back in the day. The big like, comeback hit his signature moves, hits his finisher twice, and then gets one. Yeah, that's it's very formulaic. And, you know, it, it, it wasn't like, I, I'd still say I, I still enjoyed the match, but like compared to everything else on the card so far and what was still to come, it, it was probably like, right near the bottom of my list for the whole two nights. Yeah. I think when you look at this uh, match compared to, like I said, everything else that was on this card and what was on night two's card, it stands out in not the best way, which is why I'm I'm so critical of it. And, like, I think part of the reason I, part of the reason I enjoyed night two better is because uh, I thought night two didn't have a bad match on it, whereas you had this match here and I liked the, the match that followed it because the match that followed it was so long 
it took me a wee while to get uh, into it because I was still coming off the very slow match that came before it. But we had the longest match in the night that followed. You know, I thought Brutal Can is likely the most likely member, as I said in the preview show, of uh, the Empire to lose his match. But I thought, you know, things will turn around for the Empire going forward. But then that would prove not to be the case because while well, Osprey took on Okada and the longest match of the night, 35 minutes, you know, the main event between Naito and Nabushi went 31 minutes. Uh, would you... Do you think uh, it was wise to give Okada Osprey the longest match, or do you think that, should, that honour should have been saved for the main event? I, I think Okada and Osprey went too long. They, the two of them have fantastic chemistry, but it, it, to me it took too long to get into the high gear that you normally expect from the two of them. And it wasn't like they had mm-hmm. to save themselves for the second night. Neither of them had a match on night two. They could have cut this match down by about eight or ten minutes and up the pace and it would have balanced it better. Uh-huh. Because I think when we talk about night, night two's main event, how long that went, I can see why the main event of this night didn't, uh, didn't go as long. But, you know, that, that doesn't mean that this match needs to go as long as it did. But after like, five or so minutes, I eventually started getting into it because this was more of a story-driven match than what you're used to seeing with Osprey and Okada because before this, they were often stable mates, but now Osprey's left to join the Empire and started his own faction and this was a different Osprey in that he wasn't going for his usual like, high flying moves that he usually would he did to uh, a double stomp while Okada was draped across the apron but we also surprisingly saw Okada hitting a tope con hello right over the top rope to the outside on a Osprey which uh, got a big reaction from me when I was watching it yeah that was absolutely beautiful because it's not something you see Okada do a lot and to me, I think that like the spot of the match for me was that absolutely brutal suplex on the table on the outside. That was horrific looking. Mm. Yeah, I was going to come to that. That looked uh, rough, and I think that really played into the match in a big way. And that Osprey could have easily got the counter win from Okada because Okada looked out of it. Like there was no way he was going to get make it back within the twenty count. For Osprey, for him, it's all about not just beating Okada, but he wants to pin Okada in the middle of the ring just to further validate to himself how why he feels that he's better than Okada. So again, like I said, the idea of this being a very story-driven match and he dragged Okada back to the ring, which he immediately he started thinking like, oh, this could backfire and you know, anything Okada does to Osprey after this and every time Osprey gets in danger you think he did this to himself because he chose to not take the easy win. Yeah, I mean that's it. It was, it was very well done from a story-driven perspective. And, you know, I, I was surprised that, you know, Osprey didn't have any shenanigans from the Empire or anything like that. Um, mm-hmm. I'd actually like to call it, a, call it a point that Okada is always booked as a face, but he done some heelish things during this match. Like, he pretty much deliberately not be off that apron using Will. That is a complete dickhead manoeuvre. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, uh, well, he's maybe a face and she's a heel valley, so in, in weird wrestling logic, it's somehow okay. If Osprey did that to whoever was accompanying Okada, then yeah, he'd be a right bastard. You know, it's the weird rules that we've had to live with in wrestling. But you know, I said Osprey didn't do a lot of high flyers. He did do, you know, a big Spanish fly off the middle rope, and uh, there was a weird point where the kind of the frustration you could tell was setting in for Osprey when like he couldn't put Okada away. Okada kicked out yet again. Just the the look on his face, just like like why why won't you stay down 
why, why is it I can never keep you down? And then he just did those like stomps to the face. Okay, he was just let, let, letting his frustration get the better of him. Yeah, when, when Osprey does the storms, you know that his temper's starting to get a bit of him and that's what it costs him dearly because he's so passionate, he doesn't keep his cool and it works well for his character. Yeah, uh, Osprey did the variation of the short arm braid maker and like whenever Okada was locking the money clip, which he did a couple of times, you had uh, Rocky Romero and Kevin Kelly with the idea like, you know, maybe Okada, maybe this isn't the time to go to that move. Maybe he needs to go back to the Rainmaker because that might be what it takes to beat Osprey. And uh, at one point, Okada, it's a version of a sit-out tombstone, which made me kind of win through it because I think it's a move like that that nearly ended Austin's career. But surprisingly, Osprey went for a, a top-rope Oscar. He got a drop kick right to the back of the head from Okada. What a hell of a counter that was. Uh, Okada did hit the spinning tombstone and for the first time in apparently 11 months, I believe it's his match with Taichi back at New Beginning, that was the last time it happened. Uh, Okada won a match, won a singles match with the Rainmaker. Yeah, and what what seemed weird about that was he finally broke out, but it, there was no thrills. There was no pose. There was no... It felt different from his usual. There was something in me that struck slightly different with his character work there. And I'm, I'm hoping that's going to build something going forward. Yeah. Uh, we'll see if this is like a thing where it was just like, is he just going to keep the Rainmaker for his like more tough, more difficult opponents and stick to the money clip? Or is he going to go back to more like using the Rainmaker on a more full-time basis? Because yeah, had Osprey trying to hit a version of the Tombstone and then he did kind of the, the, like the raise his arms out, which usually would set up Okada for like the pan out. So he's kind of mocking Okada. Then Okada did that, the spinning tombstone, and then he hit the Rainmaker. And, you know, we've seen moments where the crowd like have just been so caught up in the moment that they've made a wee bit of noise when they're not meant to. And I thought that would have happened here when they when Okada finally hit the Rainmaker. And I can see why they chose here, you know, being Wrestle Kingdom in the Tokyo Dome. And I thought that would get a bit of a reaction, but like you said there wasn't really any noise. And like I, I like to think, it, you know, all these people trying to be the rules, but you would have thought at least. A few people would have got caught in the moment to make, go, make it like a, oh, kind of nice. Yeah, it, it just came across really weird. And I'll be honest, this is where we talked about sort of like the wins and the losses beforehand, where we said that, you know, you know, well, one person from the Empire could take a loss. Oh, no, mm-hmm. the bloody leader did. <laughs> yeah, that was uh, a weird one. I mean, we'll talk about New York Dash, how they try to kind of recover from that. But it was a very strange one where I was like, oh, that's two out of the three empires lost, well, so that's maybe causing some doubts for Jeff Cold's match tomorrow night. But uh, we should actually talk about the star ratings for the, the show, because they're always a boring contention. Uh, like, so far in night one, you know, the New Japan Rumble, that got apparently uh, one, one and three quarter stars from Dave Meltzer. G.O.D. G.O.D. versus Dangerous Techers got three and a half. Hiromo versus El Fantasma got four stars. Uh, Kojima versus Kenta got three and three quarters. So did Hiroshi, Tanashi, and Grey Okan. I think that's being a bit too generous. Uh, and this match we just talked about Okada versus Osprey, five and a quarter stars. Uh, what was your thought, immediate thoughts here in those uh, those ratings? It was one that, like, some of them I agreed with, but that Okada Osprey one, that was not a five and a quarter star match to me. It definitely wasn't. 
Uh, it just felt it felt slightly short, and the finish was too predictable. Okada, the, the spinning doom stone, the rainmaker. Uh, it just felt too forced, and the wrong person won the match, in my opinion. So, to me, it, it dampened it for me. I would have put it maybe like a four and a quarter, four and a half. I'd, I'd put that as well because like it was a very storage of match. I think with Dave Meltzer, sometimes the story of a match uh, helps to boost the, the rating of it. And I think that, yeah, if Osprey, Osprey should have wanted to set up a further match with those kind of where he could have won and pulled out the Rainmaker because, like I said, it needs to be cool to follow a similar structure to how the, the story of Okada with Jay White went. But, you know, that's, that didn't happen and we'll, we'll see what happens with the, the Empire going forward. What do you think of uh, Hiromu and AOP getting four stars? Because it's a hell of a match, but when you actually think about it, there wasn't that much story other than Hiromu who wanted to say, to beat AOP to prove he was uh, why he proved without any doubt why he deserved to be the one challenging Ishimori. I, I think the four stars. I think if it hadn't, if the finish had, if it had got an extra five minutes and the finish was stronger, it would have made that an even higher rated match. I think. It suffered for its lack of time when you compare it to what some of the other matches got. You know, it's like pretty much half of the length of Okada and Osprey, but it probably had just as much offence rammed into that shorter period. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but uh, in terms of like the action in the ring, yeah, it's definitely four stars. I think uh, I'd, I'd lower it down because obviously there's not as much story to the match as I said. But, you know, it was still a hell of a match and deserves a high rating. But let's now go to the main event of night one for the double championships. The uh, current IWGP Intercontinental Heavyweight Champion Tetsuya Naito taking on uh, Kota Ibushi. Because we know when they were these two uh, face each other, it's basically not a good time to be a neck. Because these guys, like, will throw themselves about with reckless abandon. And it didn't take too long for guys to start getting dropped on their necks. Yeah, as soon as you, you hear that these two are going to make magic happen only the way they can, you instantly think someone's going to die. And it became pretty close a few times. <laughs> yeah, you had like, Naito doing the, the, like, the netbreaker to the outside with, like, and pulling him from underneath the bomb room doing the netbreaker on the outside. Onto the mats, which uh, the mats aren't that protective, so you know it still would have hurt like a bastard. And when you think about it, we Naito, like the offense says, it makes sense you would go after the neck because you know the destino kind of involves dropping on back on the neck and shoulders, so it perfectly would set up a bushy for his finisher later in the match. Yeah, I mean the story going into this match, but like to me, I think the one thing that I can't stop looking at is that picture-perfect Hurricane Rana off the apron. That scared the living shit out of me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like that moment that even though you're just sitting and watching it by yourself, you still, like, you, you verbally like, oh, Jesus. Because, yeah, like every time you see these two in the ring, it's always a cause for concern. Yeah, I mean, it's... It's just terrifying. I mean, you can see why Ibushi can take all these neck bumps because you see that he's even got a six-pack on the side of his neck. It's that muscular. It's like, yeah, no wonder <laughs> he can do this. I looked this up earlier on. Do you know Kota Ibushi is 38 years old? It's terrifying. 38 years old. He thinks there's 25 hours in a day as well. He's an absolute madman. I just look at him like, you are not in your 30s. Like, it's just... 
something about him. He just he has that that baby face, a literal baby face. That's what he's got. Kotobushi, which means like you're no way in your thirties. Like in the uh, body of an action man as well. It's like like yeah, it's like an action thing. <laughs> yeah. Uh, uh, obviously, you had the dress. Obviously, for Max, you had the big finisher because you had uh, Kotobushi hit the Kamigoi, but then also Naito kicked out and. Uh, Kevin Kelly pointed out, well, it took two of these to put away Sonada and the G1. So I mean, just think, is that how many it's going to take to put Naito away? Or is Ibushi going to have to hit more than that to put him away? You had Naito kind of the very, I can't remember what this move's called that he does, but kind of like, he hooks him up in kind of a version of like the Emerald Fusion, which again is dropping Ibushi on his neck. Uh, but he, he went for that quite a bit. Yeah, but eventually, like, he but Naito had also two Destinos that, again, couldn't keep Ibushi down. Ibushi had a second and a third Kamigoi, and three Kamigois proved to be uh, enough to put Naito away. And Ibushi finally became God, holding both belts off top of his head, which, I had to say, like, of these two matches, the night one match, as I mentioned, was the hardest to predict, which means I wasn't really like rooting for either one particularly. I could have seen either going through but you know even those matches went to 31 minutes whenever one of them had the finisher I was begging the other to kick out because the next stuff aside I wanted this match just to keep going and keep going Yeah Naito and Ibushi have got a chemistry it's it, it's something special about it um, they can bring out the best and the most dangerous in each other but to see Naito actually handing over the belts the, the symbolism within that Ibushi finally getting that and that to me up the stakes for night two because Ibushi now had become God and he now had mm-hmm. to try and defend it the next night against the man who said he would dethrone a God who would kill a God and that match mm-hmm. 30, over 30 minutes the brutality on his body absolutely horrific yeah and like you talk about like you know we talked about Robu being in the open match and then the semi main the next night giving from time to recover. Even though Ibushi was going to be a main event both nights, he went 31 minutes here and then we'll talk about the length of the, the night two match, but Ibushi was not about taking it easy on himself, even though he probably should have been thinking about that. And it was sad for Naito that he didn't get at least like, go through to night two, get one successful retention in the Tokyo Dome after everything he's been through with his title reign. In 2020, losing it to Evil, winning it back, and everything, and this kind of moment where he's kind of, it's kind of realizing what's happened, and then just basically just giving it to Abuji, saying like, "You were the better man here," and this made me think that going tonight too, that this was only going to be a one-day thing for Abuji. The way that he he came out obviously to rub it, and and the fact that like, yo, enjoy it because it's only going to last a day, and it's going to be about me becoming God tomorrow night. And talk about how he keeps saying the build up, it's not your destiny on Naito, it's mine. She made me think, well, well, Naito's been taken out of the equation. Is it maybe? Is it actually going to be the destiny of Jay White to walk out with both titles? Yeah, I mean, the, the, like that sort of like post match confrontation just really, really big things up. It was absolutely perfectly done. No physicality, just Jay trash talking. And Jay was looking the most confident he's probably ever looked in his entire career so far. He just looked ready for it. Mm-hmm, totally. And then this match got uh, five stars. And, you know, I think 
it's a likelihood to get five stars. Anytime Naito and Ibushi get in the ring together, but I think the five stars is well deserved. How about you? Yeah, it was definitely a five star match for me. It, it ticked every box for the story, the long term sort of goals between these two, what they've been bringing to the table, the in ring action, everything meshed perfectly for me. Five stars without a question. Mm-hmm. I like we've seen in the past like it could go either way when these guys wrestle each other. Because like how they traded the IC belt back and forth in 2019, and when you really think about it, really Naito cost himself the belt. He's the one who insisted on wrestling both nights, and he insisted on giving Ibushi the title shot, even though he'd lost the briefcase. Yeah, that's it. He's a, he's attempt to be a, a fair sport to try and give Ibushi a chance ended up costing him. We'll see in the long term if that's going to... I think these two are going to come back against each other at some point in the next year. Probably at the G1, but I cannot wait for it. Yeah, we've seen to see what Naito does going for, how he reacts to you know, this loss, because he seems to be the only person in LIG who doesn't have an immediate plan going forward. It seems to be after news that each of them have a, a purpose, except for him, which I think uh, will, will be an interesting story going forward. But we go to night two. Also, we had those uh, stardom matches that happened uh, on the pre-show, but they, they weren't televised, so we can't really comment on those. But, you know, night two, he opened up with a KOPW 2021 uh, provisional trophy match between Chase Owens, Fale, uh, Yano, and Bushi. And, you know what, that's why I love night two. Every match was, was different, everything you know, because you had this match, uh, which was kind of a comedy-based match. You had some juniors after that. You had uh, two guys just batting each other. And then you go to a break, come back, you've got two former friends fighting each other. And then some more juniors raising the bar even further. And then a hell of a main event. So I think of the two nights, night two flowed way better. Yeah, night, night two had an absolutely stellar flow beginning to end the uh opening with a spot that I never ever thought I would see um, in New Japan but we got we got ourselves a good old finger poke do <laughs> yeah because obviously Yano's too scared to get in the ring with uh, with Bally and Chase in there and obviously Bushy doing his old strategy like stay on the outside so they're like alright then we'll see how this gets in the ring they do the finger poke of, of Doom and also they immediately they rush in they, they stop them and then there's a point where Bally and Chase are, are working together they'd hit the grenade launcher on, I believe, Bushy, and then uh, Chase it has him in the bridging position, so he's going to pin him, and then Fally just freaks his legs out to break up the pin. And what They're arguing with each other, and Fally tries to steal the pin, like, what? You said if one of us wins, we both win. And Fally goes, no, if you win, you win. If I win, we win. And so he also had this dissension between the two, and then that led to Fally uh, Yano doing like the double low blow, and left the door open for Yano to, uh, once again, be 20... Uh, the KOPW Provisional Champion, which uh, I think we were kind of both we both could have seen happening because as I said he's going to be the figurehead of that that title. Yeah, Yano just suits that title perfectly, and Yano winning it again in a very Yano manner, where he barely had any interaction in the whole match. He was out for most of it, and then just comes in the double low blow, and boom! Who'd have thought he's a he's a king of pro wrestling all over again, and. Sets up for some lovely shenanigans going forwards because let's face it, Yano matches for this year. I he's he really made that KOPW fun for the last bit of last year, so I'm looking forward mm-hmm. to this. 
Yeah, uh, it was a weird mix to have in this match. You know, you got somebody like Yano, you also got a junior in Bushy, and you got like somebody the size of Fally. So it was good to see these guys you wouldn't usually see in another any other real scenario, like mixing it up with each other. Uh, and I think it seems like after New Year's Dash, it seems to be that uh, Chase Owens is going to be the first person to challenge uh, to challenge Yano for that. To, oh, what relations those two will think up? God only knows. And if something tells me like it's going to be like Chase has got this kind of really zany character at times, especially when he gets obsessed with something. So no doubt he's going to come with some bloody mad, stupid stipulation, which he thinks he's been a genius that'll probably work against him. <laughs> yeah, it would probably backfire. I wouldn't be surprised if he tries to make it a handicap match so he can have Bally help him again uh, or something like that. But uh, it seems to be more than not that wherever Yano suggests seems to get picked. So I doubt even if he did pick that, it would get chosen. So we, so we go into the next match. As I said we had some juniors because we had the junior heavyweight tag team title matches. We had the, the Ass Masters. Uh, that's their official name. I won't hear anything else about it. Taking on Sugan uh, Canamaro Desperado. And this seemed to be kind of set up to be like, the kind of current moment for Wato so far. And you know, also with Takuchi by say as well. What did you think of uh, this junior heavyweight tag title match? I, I really enjoyed it. It was it was definitely something that, you know, the junior division is lacking a little bit for its tag side of things. But when it came to these teams, you know, Taguchi is pretty much the best person you can get teamed up with in that junior division with his history with the junior heavyweight belts. He's He's pretty much one of the most... I think the only person that really has more than him is Rocky these days, and he, he does. He does really. He's a, he's a great mentor for Wato, and Wato is still very early in his journey. There's still a lot more for him to go. Um, that was yeah. It was, I felt it was a great performance, and El Desperado still coming off the back of the absolute star making um, best of Super Juniors performances that he had. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, they mentioned how Camaro had been pinned by both. Uh, uh, to get you and Wattle and the kind of the lead up in the Pro 2 shows, which kind of helped them get this. And also, I think they both beat uh, Desperado during Best of the which helped also. Uh, you got to see Wattle doing his high flying foot, doing a kind of a corkscrew move over the top on the outside onto uh, Desperado. Uh, we got to see some submission stuff in here with, uh, uh, even though Toguchi usually does the angle, it was his leg being targeted because he got caught off in the barricade and, you know, Camaro was kicking in and that got him set up perfectly for the, uh, the, uh, Fuck, I forgot the name of Desperado's submission move. Uh, the Dos Dos? Yeah, yeah. I think, yeah, I think it was, was yeah. I, I forgot it was called the Straight Muffler as well. It's like, it's one of the ones where I know it is, and then just when I went and say it, poof, popped out of my head. But they also popped up, uh, hyping up the kind of experiences of the, the other three more experienced guys other than Wato. And this match where they talked about Karamaru, you know, he's had experience in the Tokyo Dome against like the Kent after the GHC junior heavyweight title. and about Toguchi's like record as a multiple-time junior tag champion, heavyweight champion. He's held to be his time a part of Apollo 55 with Finn Balor. And uh, you had Wato, you had Kanemaru trying to push the referee and what was we kind of set up for him using the whiskey bottle. And then when that when he didn't get to use it, you thought, oh, uh, the shenanigans are backfired. Maybe Wato and uh, Toguchi are going to pull it out. But uh, it didn't end up being the case because, you know, uh, because Toguchi got caught with the, the right hand and then the pinch to Loco and uh, the champs actually walked out still with the championship. 
which surprised me. And I know because like the, the the Suzuki Gun team have not really had the best of luck at Wrestle Kingdom events with the junior tag belts. So I was I was quite pleasantly surprised to see them walking back out. And even in loss, Wato and Taguchi didn't look bad because at the end of the day they were going up against a very very experienced team. Yeah, because they mentioned in the past, like their first uh, their first reign as tag champs went over like three hundred plus days. And then they lost them at the Tokyo. I think that's when they lost them to Bushi and Shingo for a while. So they tend to be like, with the case of this is a tag team, like when they get their hands on the belts, they hold them for a good while. And yeah, I think the fact that one half of the, the tag team they're facing wasn't that experienced, but I think it's the case of like not one to maybe I thought like they do. I thought, I thought that they, with the losses that Wattwood had in the best of Super Juniors and like losing to Kamara at Silver Struggle, like, well, they've given them that adversity, but now it's going to pay off. He's going to get his title here, but Gio's like, nah, we'll hold off. We'll, we'll make it look like we're going to give him a belt, but nah, we'll hold off a little bit longer. Gio, you know, he's, that's how his mind's working right now. But we'll talk about who it looks like they're going to face you know, going forward. But yeah, it was a, a surprising result. Yeah, it was some good back and forth with the junior tag titles, and it does feel like the junior division's kind of getting, starting to feel fresh again in the tag team. Yes. There's, there's definitely signs of revitalisation and keeping the belts on the one team for a while. No more hot potato and keep it in, mm-hmm. keep it in the one place for a while. I think it's going to pay them dividends if they can stick with them for at least like the first three or four months of the year. Yeah. Uh, there's still no real explanation, I don't think, uh, about the name Team 1 or 8. They said it was some sort of innuendo or some sort of pun, uh, but they wouldn't go into it. So like, I've, I'm still lost as yet. So, you know, that's why I insist on still calling on the Ass Masters. They will always be the Ass Masters to me forevermore. <laughs> that, that is it. <laughs> I have spoken. <laughs> yeah, spoken. But you talk about, like, star ratings and everything, you know, they're debatable. I mean, the tag title match got... Hold on, I've got them in front of me. The tag, this tag title match got three and uh, a quarter stars, which, you know, I think it's fair enough. You know, it was a solid 30-minute, like, match. With a, you know, like, the challenge has still got a good showing in defeat, but this next match got five stars, and it was it went twenty one minutes. I could have watched it for an hour. This is probably match. It was almost match of the night. It was fighting with the main event for match of the night for me, because it was just two guys battering lumps out of each other, and I loved every minute of it. If you know, if you're a mainly WWE or NXT fan, and you liked Walter versus Dragunov and you thought, I want to, let's give me a little taste, I want to see more of guys almost killing each other then this is the match for you Jeff Cobb versus Shingo Takagi for the never open weight title like well, it, you know, this seems to be the never title, people forget about during the year and then Wrestle Kingdom seems to steal the show you know, you've had Shibata and Ishii fighting for that, you've had Osprey and Ibushi, you know, Kenta and Goto in the past and then this, once again, Never title basically steals the show. Grant, like I'm, I'm, I'm fanboying out about it. You know, talk about it. You know, Shingle putting on a hell of a performance yet again. The, the story going into it, Cobb being the monster. Cobb has beat Shingle twice in singles matches. This was big, meaty men slamming meat. There was no <laughs> other way to describe this. This, this was a big beefy slammer that I was hoping it would be. It was fast. It was brutal. They, both men just gave it everything. Shingo had a lot more to prove here and 
for Cobb, fighting for some semblance of a scrap of a win for the Empire. The stakes mm-hmm. could not be higher for either man. Yeah, because like even in the, over the last two members of the Empire lost, uh, Cobb in here would still add some gold to the Empire alongside Osby's a uh, UK title, uh, Red Pro British title, and the Stardom belt that uh, Priestley has. So it'd be an extra bit of gold to the faction. So it would still be a um, worthwhile win, even if, you, if only one of them won it. But you know, Shingo, he still hit some high flying moves, even though he's no longer a junior. He did a fly over the top rope. He had a version of like an elbow drop from the middle rope. And like, what's also impressive here is that you know, so we know Shingo's recently moved up from the junior division just over a year and a bit ago. So he's not the biggest heavyweight, which means that he was easily being able to get thrown around by Cobb which makes Cobb look even more like a powerhouse. Yeah, I mean, some of Cobb's, like, cat- catching him, like, two of the islands and everything like that. I was like, oh, my God, is he actually going to wrap it up already? And it just, Shingo just kept fighting. Shingo had no end to what he could mm. pull back. Yeah, like, they were getting, like, even though this is his, technically his first defence since regaining the belt from uh, Minoru Suzuki at Power Struggle, and they talked about how, you know, quite a uh, more champions have lost it in their first defence than those who have like got a successful defence under their belt. So even though obviously Shingo got like three successful defences under his belt in his first reign, he could easily in his second reign be like yet another champion that doesn't get a successful defence because they love to switch that belt back and forth. Uh, that never belt. So it, anything could have happened. And like I said, I just wanted to see this keep going. You know, you had... He got two of the islands, he kicked out. Tringo tried to get Noshigami, get the uh, Gory special looking move, and he struggled, but somehow managed to get Cobb up for it, despite the size of him. Uh, it took him a few times, but eventually the pump and bomb managed to get him down. And like I said, it went 12 minutes, and I was surprised. You know, all three members of the Empire lost after Tringo managed to hit uh, the last of the dragon, which it looked like it took him everything just to get Cobb up on his shoulders to hit the move. It just shows you the power Shingo's got because Cobb is no little man to lift up. I mean, mm-hmm. I've seen him up close. I've seen him up close in person. While not being the tallest, that man is a slab of meat. That is not an easy carry. <laughs> yeah, totally. I mean, you talk about strong style. This is like the definition of of strong style. You know, this is, I think we talked about on in the main event about the the two like tails yet coming out on heavy like. One symbolises the best, the other t- symbolises the strongest. And Chris Charlton perfectly summed up, but the never belt, that symbolises the baddest. And I think there's no better description of that belt. Yeah, I mean, you look at the different matches, uh, especially at the Dome the last several years, the, the open weight belt never has a disappointing match. There's always something special about it that it just seems to mm-hmm. captivate that no other, like, no other belt can. Yeah, totally. Uh, as much as I like to see Shingo kind of a, as a main eventer now after his like strong performances, you know, I, I'm not sad to see him still as never champion because he's the one making that belt feel like something worth vying for. As we'll talk about with uh, who it looks like his next challenger is going to be. But a big question we need to ask is, what does this mean for the Empire as all three of them lost at Wrestle Kingdom? Yeah, I mean, I think we we both kind of talked about this privately before, but to me, I was like, before New Year's Dash, which we'll get to later on and what happens there, but 
I came out of that thinking, is this about to become a retribution moment? Is this team about to get buried as soon as it begins? Yeah, I think it's a, bit of a, a kind of a strong comparison to make, but you know, it seems like they were set with all this like promise because all three of them were in like featured matches. You know, well, uh, you know, two Osprey and Okan were facing like former world champions, and you know, Cobb was uh, challenging for a title. So you got to think at least one of them would get a win to help further solidify this, this faction, uh, especially after who protected Cobb and Okan seemed to be in the. World Tag League, but maybe like with Osprey's like rant going like, "What you think we're a joke? You think we're done? No, we were angry before. Now we're just pissed off. So you know, maybe this is kind of some larger planet play here that we're not privy to that we can't fully see yet. Yeah, there's there's something going on there, but what the long term goal is, I'm still trying to figure it out. I've got ideas, but I'm still not sure. I want to give it a bit more time before I start really. Guessing properly. Mhm. Uh, so after that, you know, thankfully that was the the end of the first half because you know I needed, I definitely needed a break. I needed a cigarette. I don't even smoke. But, <laughs> you know, I needed time to kind of cool down after that and get in the right frame of mind because then we had a very personal match, a special singles match uh, up next with Evil taking on Samada and uh, something they kept emphasising during this. Matches that it's a bit like Sanada maybe having to change from the Sanada we're used to in order to be evil, but then also Chris Challenge saying that it's kind of important for Sanada to not let evil change him and to like further solidify the way he does things by like being evil his way. What did you think of kind of this, the way they were trying to tell with Sanada? I thought it was interesting because, yeah, on that lead up the road to shows where Sanada just seemed to finally snap and wasn't himself anymore and it was bringing out a, a different side and I thought is he going to bring this to Wrestle Kingdom is this what Evil was looking for is he trying to get him to lose his cool to kind of see his way of thinking like this is why I left you because this is the way to do it this is how you get results and Sanada mm-hmm. had a lot to prove uh, Sanada to me had a lot more to prove and a lot more to gain from this match than Evil because at least Evil had that small run with a double gold and the big dramatic heel turn Sonada needed yeah. this mm-hmm. yeah this is definitely a make or break moment for Sonada yeah further solidify himself now as a singles talent and you know he had your typical bullet club and evil like shenanigans you know because he did this spot with the, the chair around the neck and he hits it with another chair and so he had uh, like Togo getting involved and at one point the referee got knocked out and then Togo and Evil hit a magic killer in Sanada, you know, further like rubbing it in, you know, using the finisher that Evil and Sanada used to help carry them to two world tag leagues and two uh, multiple IWGP tag title reigns. Obviously, that wasn't enough to keep Sanada down. So, you know, Evil, Togo didn't overstay as well. There was a point where it looked like he got the garret in while Evil distracted the ref, but then you saw a different angle. You see that Sanada had grabbed it and was like not letting him get it in. And, uh, there was a table set up on the outside, which, you know, it gets up, a table set up in wrestling, it must be used. Uh, but it was like Togo getting knocked off the apron by Evil and going flying through. And, like, the way he flies to that table, it looks like he gets hit and then does a bit of a jump. It looks like he's trying to hit an elbow drop on an invisible man. That that killed me. Like, when you actually look at back and you see the almost elbow drop motion, I was like, does Dick Togo think he's Macho Man right now? Because <laughs> the way he's the way he's the way he's selling this 
it's like he is going for it. <laughs> I mean, and that table properly crumbles right in the middle and then just folds in half. And, you know, fair dues to Dick Togo, like, taking that movie, even though he's technically kind of no longer a full-time wrestler. Like, because those, that's just not any table. That's a New Japan table he's going through. And those things are unforgiving. Those things can be very... Like, you do take that kind of bump, there's no guarantee that that, uh, that table was going to break because he's not even a, that big a guy. So there's no guarantee that that table would have broke. That's it. I mean, like we've seen those tables get some severe moves and big heavyweights getting put on them and they've still not broke. So he got lucky with that one. Like, it's either that or he really hit that table with some force that we didn't see. <laughs> yeah. Uh, also... I don't think I mentioned it during the World Tag League show, which I think I should have, but like evil show things, he seems to be like going after the timekeeper. Like he's purposely diving into the, the barricade to knock the table over. And he properly twice sent the whole table and the poor timekeeper flying. And then as soon as he got back up, he Irish whipped an ad into the barricade again and knocked him down again. And the comedy's like, oh, for God's sake, we just got everything straightened out. Yeah, poor Abby, he just never gets like the thing is, Evil's got a better hit rate in Abby than what Fally did, and Fally used to go from all the bloody time. <laughs> yeah. But in the match we had uh, Evil's big target was going after the legs of Sonada, uh, you know, like locking in the Texas Cloverleaf and at times it looked like Sonada's way of wrestling wasn't working because like he'd still insisted on going for the uh, for the minsaw and then getting caught with the knees. Uh, but eventually uh, a, a spot that got up off at me is, you know, it wasn't everything is evil, it's everything is Sonada. Sonada hit a version of Evil's own move, and then with the, the moonsault, managed to get the win over his former tag partner in 23, in, uh, uh, 23 minutes. And it was a, a hell of a match, you know. The case like, okay, you know, after that big match with Singo and Jeff Gold will probably get it slowed down. Like, nope, it was still going full speed ahead. And I also think, like, from the Shingo match onward, it was the case of the last four matches in the to be thinking, he's like, okay, we're going to get this match, and this match is going to top it, and then this match is going to top it, and the main event's going to top it all. Yeah, yeah the, the, the pace just upped and upped, and Evil and Sonada, they gave it everything. And I, well, let's face it, we all know that I'm the biggest Sonada fanboy in this probably side of the globe. So I was, I was more than ecstatic to see my boy pick up the win, and yeah, I like that. They just did not want to slow down. Night 2 just kept on going better and better and better. Yeah, and like it makes a big change from last year when he lost his Axe Sabre Junior. We were kind of slated about it because we, we said that was going to be a moment, big moment to get a first like, taste of singles gold and then nothing really came of it. But here, this felt like a, a match that really made Sonata more so than his, his match with Ibushi because his match with Ibushi and the G1 was a hell of a match, but this felt like it meant more because of the uh, it felt more personal and there was a story being told with him and Evil being former tag partners and it felt like this moment was going to carry Sonata forward to a big title opportunity hey, we'll talk about that later on and it didn't really hurt Evil really I don't think it will because he's like a heel and part of Bill because he can always make an excuse as to why he didn't he didn't win but now we go into the semi-main event we have Taiji Ishimori defending against the man who took the belt from the man who beat ELP the night before, the man who won the best of the Super Juniors, uh, Hiromu Takahashi, and this, well, I don't even know what else to say here. Like, I'm running out of it. 
ways to describe how good these matches are because this, this deserved to be in the semi-main event, I'll just say that. I'm pretty sure these two before the match pretty much necked a case of red dough each, snorted the line of cocaine and went, all right, let's see who can go faster. <laughs> yeah, I wouldn't be surprised, you know. It was just, it went 25 minutes. It, it didn't over, it never felt like it was overthinking. Welcome, like you said, like the way that ELP and Hiromu packed a lot into their match the night before, it seemed like they were going for that same strategy here between him and Green EO. Gina Roma and Ishimori, they were just like pulling out all the stops. And again, like with the way that Ishimori was insisting on going for that, yes, look, you know, it felt like we talked about the possibility of a swerve with Uhuronga going in with a potential injury tonight, too. And then for them to pull out, like, oh, Ishimori's actually going to retain the title. That was always a, a possibility in the back of my mind. Yeah, I mean, that's it. Like, the things didn't feel as certain as what I thought they would. I went into it thinking, Ishimori could still actually retain here because the way these two have been at it with each other over time there is every chance that this is Ishimori's time to retain the, the two of them just mm-hmm. did not give each other, there was no breathing space at all, like yes, some of the spots were absolutely nuts uh, the speed of that body sliding German suplex that Ishimori does just like a whip, I just I love that move it's beautiful yeah, that's, that's one that's one of those moves I can never get tired of seeing. It just looks so fluent, so good the way he does it. Uh, also, like they had the the turnbuckle getting like exposed, and uh, her almost shoulder getting thrown out of the ring post, which helped further soften him up for the yes look. But also the the corner being exposed itself for a similar spot that we saw in the uh, Super Juniors final, where her does like the running Death Valley driver into the exposed bucket, which looks like a bitch to take. Uh, so, props to Ishimori for doing that. And honestly, this is the Tokyo Dome, so the time bomb couldn't put Ishimori away. That I can't remember the move, but the big suplex and kind of a face buster move that Hormo uh, does couldn't put him away. But eventually, he managed to kind of counter the bloody cross and kind of do a bit of an exchange of counters, lock in, hit the time bomb too. And Hormo to once again be. Uh, IWGP Junior Heavyweight Champion. I believe this is now his third time as champion. Yeah, I mean, look, watching the the time bomb to that emerald explosion is just beautiful. And yeah, when you look at it, you go, yeah, like fuck, would I want to take that? That definitely is going to fit you out for the count. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because like the last few minutes, like, there was exchange like going for this move. No, oh, he's going for this, but he's counting to that because that's the thing with some uh, like. Hiromu's uh, matches, like we see, we talked about it in his match with Desperado, like some of the characters that you can pull out, you wonder, like, how, how the what process do you go through to think of something like that? Yeah, like you, you go, there's no logical way I can come to this conclusion. It, it, it's, it shows how different his mind is in wrestling. He's got a special, there's <laughs> like a mad, it's like a mad genius. He just comes with the craziest of shit, and I love it. Yeah, I think it, it goes to show further that with likes of him and Ibushi, you know, it takes a certain kind of uh, insanity to want to become a pro wrestler and to succeed as a pro wrestler, I think. And it's not about being fighting champions, but Rob is not like, backing down. He immediately said, like, I know who I want to be my first opponent. I want Show to be my first challenger, and it feels like that's where we're going. Yeah, definitely. And it's a match that, let's face it, They've had a couple of encounters already. 
and it is nothing short of beautiful. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because like she did beat her Homer. We should remember that during the best of the bridge news, and like he just fell short of making the final. If he'd beaten Ishimori uh, on that last night, he would have went through instead of Hiromu to face Desperado. So like I think it, he's more than anybody he's deserving. It's very similar to Nigel giving Ibushi the title shot on night one because he uh, won the G1 but lost the briefcase. So yeah, I think if anybody outside of Ishimori is more deserving, uh, it's it's show. Yeah, definitely, and it's it's a match that I I would not be surprised if we're going to see it in the next month or so. I think it's on the cards. Mm-hmm. Uh, Ishibori versus Hiromu got four and three quarter stars from Dave Meltzer, uh, which I think is fair enough. But also, Esanada versus Evil got four and a quarter stars. Yeah, I mean the, the star ratings there. I feel, I feel, like, I feel like, it, it, yeah, I, I can, I can agree with them on night two. I feel that mm-hmm. yeah. you know, it, it was hard to come on the back of Shingo and Cobb. Like that was a nigh on impossible task to try and match up to those two. But the two matches after it gave it a hell of an effort. It helps that also they do that intermission, like they do, they do that anyway. But also they had to do it to clean and disinfect the ring. So if they hadn't had that time out in the middle, it would have been a or more of an uphill battle for them. The fact that the crowd had that bit of respite in between, I think, really helped it. But yeah, obviously, I know also the typical joke is all five stars if it was in the Tokyo Dome, but actually sitting down and watching these matches, you can't really argue with some of these ratings. And you can't really argue with the main event. Like, oh, like we were, we hit, a standard would set with last night's main event, but then we get into night two, Jay White versus Kota Bushi for the IWGP Heavyweight Intercontinental Championships. No, Jay White is now the holder of the G1 briefcase. This match at 48 minutes and 5 seconds is officially the longest main event in Tokyo Dome history. And quite well deserving of it. Um, I said this to like Stephen and Jack in a, in a separate conversation. Um, this, is, this, is my, this is my bold, big, bold take. A lot of people disagree with me on this one, but I stand by it. This, to me, um, beat Omega and Akada for me the stakes on it, the build, and perhaps because I had more time compared to when I first watched those matches to get invested, but this to me is probably the finest wrestling match I've ever watched. Wow. Yes, I believe Omega Okada uh, won at Risking Eleven was the one before this that, that, that held the honour of being the uh, being the uh, that held the honour of being the longest main event at like about 46 minutes, so just by 48 minutes it by a couple of minutes that beat it. Uh, I should mention, I forgot a spot in the, the junior retail match I thought was interesting because uh, I remembered there was a spot near the ramp where Hiromi went all the way down to the, almost back up the whole ramp to then run back and try and hit a hurricane run on Ishibori only to get carried into a powerbomb, which they said is because, oh, it's because of the lights on the ramp and Ishibori was in the dark, so you couldn't see Ishibori getting back up. But I forgot to mention that in our ma- when we were talking about the match before because that looked like a nasty spot on the outside. It, it was, and that, let's face it, that was a bloody long, long entranceway as well. Yeah, that was a hell of a hell of a bit of cardio for her almost to to do that long run, and like also the lights on that ramp. I joked to you after watching night one, like I, I noticed that midway through night one, I could unnotice that, that the lights on the the ramp and how long it was. It looked like something. Like the Rebel Road level from Mario Kart. <laughs> Definitely. 
definitely did. Or like, or like, or like the Bifrost from Thor or something like that. Just all the colours that they were using. But yeah, going back to the main event, 48 minutes, 5 seconds. And I honestly think there were points when we were getting to like calling the, the 35 minutes of piss or 40 minutes of piss. Part of me actually thought, are they going to go 60 minutes? I thought at one point they could honestly go the full 60 minute time limit. Because, you know, it would keep both guys strong. Uh, it makes the uh, Bushy look like a, a beast going 60 minutes this night and 30 minutes the night before. And also, Jay White doesn't lose anything because he didn't technically lose it, just the time ran out. Uh, but also, at one point, they tried to do the, the same thing that happened when he won the briefcase, where he did that back play with his feet on the road, but this time the referee spotted it and like called him out on it. Uh, yeah, wasn't he getting away with it this time? <laughs> mm-hmm. And obviously, Jay White was kind of on offence for the early part, and then there was that moment where he triggered to kind of murder a bushy and just kind of back him to the corner and suddenly realising that, oh, fuck, I'm, I'm in trouble here. And uh, he kept trying to go strike for strike with him, which was a mistake, to the point where Jado's basically trying to tell him, like, like, change it up, like, stay down, stop trying to strike with him. Uh, yeah, like Gato's like, just d- d- do not try and get into a striking match with him. You are going to suffer. And my God, some of the fucking strikes that he gave him. Jay White looked like he was not seeing anything but stars. There was, mm-hmm. was one bit in particular yeah. you know, up in the top. And I thought, oh my God, someone's going to die. I just got the living fear. Like, actually shouting at the teller, like, don't, don't do it. You fucking die. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they spent quite a long time sitting up for nothing really to happen. I think it looked like. Yeah, Jay White was trying to do like a sleeper suplex off of the top rope, which I think we've seen in that Okada Omega match from WrestleMania 11. They did like a dragon suplex spot from a similar position, so they could have done it. But and then obviously later later on in the match, we should try to do that that German suplex like from the outside. And I'm just like for a second, I was like, can we just for two minutes stop dropping each other on each other's heads? You know, just for two minutes, lads. Honestly, and yeah, like. Uh, Jay White went after the legs of Ibushi, he looked in the, the Tanahashi tap-out and he said, could this end up being the Ibushi tap-out? And they said that, you know, this is further rubbing in because, like, this is the same move that uh, Jay White used to take the titles from Tanahashi, a man that Ibushi respects, and he was using it to try and take the double gold from Ibushi, just as Ibushi achieved his dream of becoming God. Yeah, I mean, mistakes could not have been any higher. Like, Ibushi coming into this looking an absolute beast. Jay White coming in with the confidence he, he, he just looked like as if to say doesn't matter what you do man this is mine I've called this mm-hmm. all along I've said this was going to happen and sweet mother yeah. god the, the finishing sequence scared me absolutely terrifying mm-hmm. I mean, the second time that he locked it in he kind of had and they pulled him back and set the ring and he, but even Rocky Romero who's obviously big baby face and still not over G like turning on chaos like with Stephen, like oh that's it. Like Abushi can't get away. He's gonna have to tap out. And Abushi started crawling the cover. You can see this panic on Jay's face. It's like stop it. Just just give up. Just tap out. Because like he thinks if he gets to the ropes, I don't know what else I can do to put him away. You know they hit. They're each. They all hit their big moves. Like Abushi hit the the last ride and the the uh, Phoenix splash. And Jay White did hit a, a blade run a bit. Abushi kicked out. Also. Uh, Ibushi did hit a version of the V-trigger at one point as well as a pull counter. And like, Gero didn't get involved like too much or to the point where it looked like he was like, got it overseas welcome. 
uh, it did look like Ibushi had the match wrong hand and Gale did like pull the ref out and like the commentators were giving Geef like, oh throw him out of here, throw him out but just at the end I thought oh Jay's going to actually get it, it looked like he had him perfectly set up for the Blade Runner but eventually I believe this was the second Kamigoya of the match and I actually wanted Jay White to win but you know that was that proved to be enough after 48 minutes Ibushi collapses into the cover and manages to remain God for now. It was a Kamigoya to the back of the head. I thought that was a fucking execution oh, attempt. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I forgot about that. Yeah, he also hits the Kamigoya to the back of the head and also hits it from the front, which I remember like seeing him grab the back, like, oh God, he's not got it. He's not, oh Jesus. It was just like Ibushi's strikes are just, you can see the kickboxing background coming to the forefront. He really... I would not want to be in the end of one of those knees. No, totally not. But Jay looked absolutely spent as he was being helped to the back. And then, like much like how maybe she didn't have much time to celebrate before Jay came out, uh, a slightly less confrontational way of coming out as he was celebrating. We had a uh, suit wearing uh, Sonada coming out and basically saying, like, I want to fight you for those belts. And basically just went, okay. Which is a far cry from how Kent had beat up Naito the year before. Yeah, I like that. Like Sonada coming out, showing a sign of respect, like doing the challenge, but making it a case of you know, we've we've had some good matches, we've had some good encounters. I want mm-hmm. what you've got, and it, it makes sense. Some people assumed that maybe Okada would have been first to jump at it, but I like the fact they didn't go with the obvious route, and it's it's definitely. A, I think though. The biggest thing for me after the match wasn't Ibushi's celebration. It wasn't Sonata coming out. I think we'll probably both agree on this one. It's Jay White post-match comments. Mm-hmm. Yeah, briefly talking about Sonata, I think obviously him coming out, he's got a bit more confidence after he's beaten Evil and Ibushi being a fighting champion. Also, he knows how good Sonata is because it was him that he had to beat to win the G1. He was more than willing to give him a title shot. But yeah, yeah. we'll have talked about this a little bit earlier in the week you'll have heard us talk about this with Dave Hockney uh, on Central and also you heard like David Campbell and the rest of the team on Central the week before talking about it but still that's something we don't know fully at the time recording the details of it but Jay White's future in New Japan seems very uncertain because I watched the other day that video of him like his post-match comments and it looks like you've got like a guy clearly having a mental breakdown before your eyes you know just like he prefers himself as Jamie, not Jay. And like he's throwing tables around, he's like, all the sacrifices I've made, and he just kind of just chuckles as he kind of collapses in his chair and moans at the bout nobody helping him and basically says, like, what's this all for if I'm not, like, to not be the best, you know, like, everything I've sacrificed, you know, I'm coming over here when I could be at home, you know, during a pandemic. Basically, said, like, maybe my time is better spent somewhere else. The, the actual selling on that, like, you know, it's it's so hard to tell is it a work or is it a shoot? It's just, you know, the way you say it, it's like, you know, contractually, yeah, I'm obliged though. If they want me tomorrow at Dash, I'll be there. But after that, that's it. It's just the way you said that that's it. No hint of another future, no riding off into the sunset, just that's it. I've done this for eight years, three and a half years since I've seen my family. What is the point? Mm-hmm. Yeah, like he seemed totally done. I mean, he just wrestled almost an hour, so physically he's done. And also, like, this is created. Like, is he going to sign with the 
with WWE doing a stay with New Japan because like it seems to be like we have this every few years after a WrestleMania because the, t- the contracts come up in January because like when, when Omega didn't beat Okada the first time whenever he thought he was going to hit risk number 11 there was then rumours that he was leaving but he didn't and then obviously in 2019 where Omega left but then we were like is he going to join his pals in AEW or is he going to go to WWE and now here we are Jay White in a similar position uh, obviously we'll have talked about this a lot on uh, on Sanjo but without like retreading ground what uh, if it was up to you if you could have your way would you have him go to WWE or stay in New Japan just one or the other if it was up to you stay in Japan he's still got a lot ahead of him uh, well, like Ibushi's 38 we mentioned earlier Jay White's only 28 he's still young he's got plenty to prove plenty to do and I think he would if he stays he will end up with the big belt again in the next year or two and I could see him being a very I think this could be the this could be the start of a turn and I'd love to see Jay White as a face mm-hmm. yeah it was interesting it was to see what would happen with Bullet Club you know if anyone was going to take over if Jay White leaves I would love it to be Kenta as the leader because I don't think anybody else is worthy enough to take that position at this point but you know, you had that big uh, ten man tag the next night where uh, I believe it was Tommy Oishi after a, a brainbuster pin to White and Jay White just kind of just looked to the back with a little pomp or circumstance and uh, Tommy Oishi in his uh, post match comments basically said like don't let this loss get you down come get yourself right and come back and try and get your revenge so basically Oishi was saying like don't leave give it some time and come back you and me will have a rematch. Because obviously we saw how good these two can be when they had that match at the uh, the A Block final. Yeah, I mean their A Block final was fantastic, and you could see it when Jay White came out. Bullet Club came out, and most of them had a little bit of evil. Seemed a bit quiet, but Jay, just no posing, no, no pumping around. Just stayed in the corner, almost out of sight. It was just this isn't Jay White. This isn't Switchblade. Something's broke. And he needs to get it back to, back together again. And this, to me, this is why I, I should say this could be one of the best stories in New Japan for the next coming months. Yeah, totally. It's definitely got everybody buzzing. I think if Jay did go to WWE, he probably, even though he could jump right to the main roster, he probably would go to NXT. And to be fair, like the dream matches you could have there, you know, him versus Finn Balor. When he talked, when he talked about Finn Balor. I uh, played a part in him, him getting to come to Japan back in the day, and like he called himself the last rock and roller. The reference to him being called himself the real rock and roller when he was in Bullet Club there was definitely a history to play on there. And obviously, if anyone can do it, it would be NXT. But I think at least he needs at least one year, one more year in Japan before thinking about leaving. Plus, he's like he's twenty eight, so he's got plenty of time to consider where he's going to go. That's it. There's so many options, and you know, depending on the way working relationships work, you know, if it opened up sort of cross promotion things like with AEW in the future, well, I'm not going to complain at the thought of Kenny Omega versus Jay White. That is a, a dream match for me. Mm-hmm. Definitely, but we're not going to talk about all the matches from it. New Year's We're just going to talk about how some of the things they set up. So we talked about that. It seems that. Uh, Chiso wins after that 10 man tag is going to face Yano at some point. Uh, there was a 8 man tag of Dangerous Techers, Kanamaru, and Desperado 
they lost to ELP, Ishimori, and GOD after I believe Kamaro got pinned by ELP. So that basically, and also they celebrated with the, they, they posed with the belts afterwards, which means it's like Bullet Club, uh, ELP, and Ishimori getting back together as a tag team and going after the tag belts, which I'm looking forward to. They, uh, it seemed like uh, Okada wants uh, to fight Evil at some point. There was kind of a stir off between the two after the match fight when Okada was on their ramp and Evil was still in the rail. So Sonata versus Sonata versus the Bushes for the double gold. Uh, Shingo kind of challenged Tanahashi to fight him for the never belt. Basically, like, are you up for the kind of fight that you need to win a belt like this? Uh, Show versus her own, but at some point, uh, Bushi called it Master Watt after he pinned him in a big uh, ten man ten man tag, and like, also, we don't know what's happening with Nitro, but also we're going to get a Dangerous Techers versus G.O.D. rematch, so it looks like a lot of big stuff is being set up for a uh, new beginning, which should be still going ahead, like, because they talked about this state of emergency that was going to happen, but it looks like the main change here is that it may just change how many people they can let in, maybe they'll do the empty arena stuff that they started in when they did the New Japan Cup last year, and it looks like they may have to start an hour earlier to close, they then shut the venues down an hour earlier because they've probably moved the the time where venues can stay open to to like eight thirty when usually New Japan shows would finish around nine thirty their time. So obviously they're going to need to shorten the length of the shows or start an hour earlier. Yeah, I mean definitely, it sounds like they're they're. I mean, I've looked on their website and they're still selling tickets, so I, I think the shows are still going to go ahead. Um, their capacity is going to be quite different. Um, I mean, I even looked at the, like, the numbers for the Dome and it was like 12,000 one night and 7,000 the next. So they still had about 20,000 people over two nights. It's a lot of people in this day and age. Yeah, though so they did say apparently uh, Wrestle Kingdom 12, where it had seen a piece in number of about 40,000 new subscribers for New Japan World, which was at the highest. Apparently, this is, this, this is the highest since then. The second highest jump in subscribers for New Japan World came at this year's Wrestle Kingdom because obviously the limit of many people that could attend the, the show, and this is the second most to then, I imagine it's somewhere in the 30,000 range, and obviously I think for their streaming service, that's going to be a good thing, new increased numbers there for people while they can't attend the shows, and like if it means that we can still keep this show going, if it means that they're going to keep running shows, and this doesn't end up like, because we were in about this time last year that everything fell apart, and I was worried that was going to happen all over again. Yeah, definitely. I'm, I'm hoping they can still keep the fans in some capacity because I, I do feel it sets them quite a bit apart um, from some of the other places. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have obviously the road to New Beginning set to start on the 17th, which I believe is today. Yeah, when you're listening to this, we're recording this a little bit earlier in the week. Uh, we're going to go to New Beginning in Nagoya on the 30th of January, which then lead to New Beginning in Hiroshima on the 10th and 11th of February so with all these new matches being set up we basically lose those cards you can tell are going to be stacked and then also we start a new road and on the 14th of February on Valentine's Day we're starting the, the road to Castle Attack and that's going to lead to the Castle Attack show was the 27th and 28th of February and I remember when I seen that like I've never heard that tale I've never even seen anything like what the fuck is Castle Attack <laughs> I know, it's like, I was like, hmm, I'm not really familiar with this one, but it's certainly going to be an interesting one. We've got COVID pending, uh, but let's let's face it, let's hope the vaccine is going to keep things 
from going too far down the opposite way. But I think we've got a very a very interesting couple of big big shows ahead of us. Yeah, definitely. Cause like we've talked about how Japan's been kind of fallen real seemingly, but I think this new state emerges to do with the fact that like new strains have been the noticing new strains of coronavirus that kind of spread a bit quicker. So obviously that's also going to be a big concern. And there has been said that a lot of people are still hesitant to go to these shows because of potential risk of coronavirus. But hopefully, like they can still maintain shows as they've been going and following the rules as they have been. And it looks like end of January and February. It's going to be a busy month for New Japan and potentially us as well. Uh, try, try to find a way to uh, get both a coverage of the New Beginning and Castle Attack, hopefully for you guys uh, next month. And, you know, it could always happen that by the time it comes to someone else, it means that oh, all shows have been cancelled, which has happened to us in the past. Let's just keep our fingers crossed that it hasn't happened. Yeah, definitely. Fingers crossed. I'm, I'm hoping for it. <laughs> Also, like you talked about how Ibushi uh, is defending the double goal against Sanada. Uh, here, apparently, Ibushi has been saying that he actually wants to unify the belts, which is good, but an end to this whole thing. We've been talking about the idea of the two carrying two titles, not just because apparently his reason for wanting to unify them is because it's very heavy to carry two titles around. <laughs> um, he's thinking of it in very practical terms, rather mm-hmm. than like the way you'd expect. But I mean, to me, it does solve the problem of how do you separate the belts well don't just put them together and put bigger spotlight on say the open weight belt give it a higher mm-hmm. bit in the pecking order which is good and I think that plays into the whole having Tanahashi be the next challenger for the open weight belt um, which I think is going to be a great match um, but still I'd say my favourite feud going forward is going to be Jay White V's depression <laughs> yeah and also uh, we got we still don't know what's going to happen with Naito. I thought somebody would have challenged him. Maybe he'll have some. He would have some sort of special singles match to help him like get back his wooden ways and start him off to go back after the title. But yeah, we know, he could always like come back when about the New Japan Cup time to challenge for you know still so many questions left to be answered. And also you talk about like secondary belts. If they combine these two belts, then when the US belt eventually gets being defended again. That can then take over the kind of the role that the IC belt had, because you know that's like been semi-main event of shows in the past, so that could always be a possibility. But uh, I think we've talked about everything uh, as in depth as we can. As you mentioned, five and a quarter stars was again the rating for Jay White versus the Bushy, and when you actually watch it, and given the description you give it, Graham, assuming you agree with that wholeheartedly. Oh, yeah, to me, I, I would have given it even higher. It is my favourite wrestling match of all time so far. Yeah, with this and what AEW was doing with that Kenny Omega Phoenix match, which apparently also got five stars, you know, the match of the year candidates are coming out fast and hot, and we're only like a week and a bit into the year. So, what the hell is the rest of the year going to have in store for us? It's going to be mad. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely, but. You know, we've gone we're about an hour and 40 minutes nearly at this point, and we thank you for staying with us if you managed to stick to the end with us and enjoyed our coverage of everything going on in Wrestle Kingdom and look forward to yet another year of wrapping up everything for New Japan for you. And we'll retreat at Suplex Retreat to keep up with all the goings on here. You can also follow us on, Twitter, on Facebook and Instagram as well. Join our community page on Facebook and stay tuned for details about shows like our ACSR Central 
show that we uh, we did this week with Dave. Uh, it comes out every Thursday with uh, covering everything going on in the news, sort of the EW, NXT, that, stuff like that. Uh, also, our feature shows, we've had a feature show recently. It comes out every Tuesday, we have a feature show about our truth. We have one just there about the best moments from the Blackpool takeovers. We also have a show coming up on the Royal Rumble and uh, at the end of the month, we're going to have a show about Drew McIntyre one year on from when he won the WWE Royal Rumble back in 2020 and how we think main event Drew McIntyre has fared over the last year and a bit. All sorts of stuff to come in the future. Uh, our YouTube channel shows like the Conspiracy Theories book it and the latest quiz show down the virtual version of our annual Royal Rumble quiz is going to come out around about Royal Rumble weekend. Should be a, a fun con. Should be a fun time for all. And... I don't know if I can plug anything else. Obviously, this go back in our archives, watch, listen to the past episodes of this show and Saturday Draft Live, which comes every Saturday. Uh, and I've plugged myself silly. We've been talking for so long, I'm almost losing my voice. So, <laughs> Grant, it's been a fun time, and I'll just say goodbye, my friend. Goodbye. Thank you again. <laughs>